All right, I'll pray and we'll jump in. How about that? There are a lot more girls than there are guys tonight. I'm just saying. Guys, we need to work on that. We're going to outnumber them. We're going to outnumber them soon. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the time to open your word. Your word, it sanctifies, it teaches. Lord, I pray that those who are yours would delight in your word. Like, um, oh, like Ezekiel says, your word is like sweet honey to me. And the psalmist says that again, it's sweet honey to me. It's, it's sweet to my taste. I desire it. I want it. I delight in it. And to those who are far from you, God, your word, the, the power in your word that comes from the mouth of God by the Holy Spirit has the power and the ability to awaken dead sinners and make them alive. And I pray that God, just do miraculous things as you have throughout all of history. As you are prone to do, do miracles tonight in saving sinners and sanctifying those who are yours, making them more like Jesus, your son, who is not only the firstborn from the dead, but who is now the king of heaven and who we long to be with. And so again, I cannot pray enough times. Be with us tonight. Amen. All right. Open to 1 Kings 8. Open up to 1 Kings 8. We'll continue our study of 1 Kings we were in 1 Kings 7, actually, the last time that we were in this series. JT preached on John 2 about the temple, but before that, we were in 1 Kings 7, and it ends this way. It says in verse 51 of 1 Kings 7, Thus, all of the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. We've come to the end of the temple account, it seems. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So everything is finished. Now we enter into 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8 is like the after party for the temple building. Everyone's getting together from all over Israel, from every corner of Israel. Solomon's bringing people together and they're celebrating the building of the temple, but they're celebrating something greater than just the building of the temple. This is like JT used an HGTV show analogy at the beginning of talking about the temple, right? about the furnishings and this is God's house. This would be the moving in part. This would be the big reveal where they, they pull the stuff apart and the, they, they see it and the people move in. Okay, this is, this is God moving into his house. God comes to live in the temple with his people in this text. That is, that's the primary, the primary theme of this text. And instead of three points tonight, I'm just going to give you a tag, like a little, a little line, okay? So if I boiled 1 Kings 8, 1 through 21 down to one sentence, what would it be? You might want to write this down. It would be, that the presence of God comes by the fulfillment of his promise through David's son. That's it. That's the spark notes on 1 Kings 8, 1 through 21. <laughs> the presence of God by the fulfillment of his promise through David's son. All right? And we will, we'll break that down and we'll see that tonight in the text. What do we mean by the presence of God? This is kind of an abstract thing to think about. What do we mean by the presence of God? Well, Quite plainly, it means his being with, his living with, his dwelling with his people. It's close communion with them, living with them. So let's just jump right into the text. We're going to read this in two sections, verses 1 through 13, and then verses 13 through 21. I'm going to read 13 twice, okay? Let's jump in. 1 Kings 8, verse 1. And then Solomon, temple's finished. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel, all the important guys from around Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem. Why? In order to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And so the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of the Lord, so they're bringing it into the temple. It's God's moving in to the temple, okay? 
I don't know why I did air quotes. God moved into the temple. His presence was in the temple. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. That's like the September, October for us. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, just tons of people, who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place inside the inner sanctuary of the house. They brought it into the most holy place. It was designated for the presence of God underneath the wings of the cherubim. So it's overshadowed by these gigantic cherubim wings. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long, that's what they carried it by, that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. And there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So all that's inside of it is just the two tablets of stone that God wrote the Ten Commandments on and gave to Moses and the people of Israel. And when the priests came out of the holy place, get this, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. Not some wimpy cloud. It was so that the priest, it was so dense and so thick that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God moves into his house. Verse 12, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I, Solomon, have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. That's a tall order, Solomon. We'll see if that holds true. But here, first we see the presence of God finally coming to fill in the temple. And the importance of God's presence is evident in this passage. It's, it's the central theme of this passage that we just read. For a number of reasons. Not only was it locally based in Israel, it was set on top of a mountain so that it could be seen from all around. It was culturally central to Israel, showing its importance. It had everything to do with local Israelite life. Solomon gathered people from all over the country, every corner of Israel, to come to this gathering, this big after party, to celebrate. And he didn't throw a party at the beginning of building the temple. It wasn't like, all right, we get to start on the temple, party time. They finished it. And when God's presence moved into the temple, that's when they celebrated. Because that was the purpose of the temple, that God would dwell with his people. And so I would say that the importance of God's presence is over everything else. It's more important than everything else, especially in this passage. And it's, again, it's somewhat of an abstract idea to us. And so I want to give you like four pictures, four illustrations of things that the presence of God would represent to the people. And this isn't all, this isn't an exhaustive list. It was so much more than this, but these are awesome things to think about. So four quick pictures of what presence is like to give you an idea. If we go back to your childhood, I remember long, scary nights in my dark bedroom. And I was terrified, like what's behind the door? Why does my, why does my laundry look like a monster? It, it was a monster, it's everywhere. But thinking those things, and then when dad or a trusted parent walks into the room, no more fears, right? Everything just vanishes. Everything's gone. And so the pre- it's his presence 
He's not anything special. It was his presence to me as a child or the presence of an adult that you trusted that was stronger and, and bigger than you, that you trusted. It's their presence that brought security and it brought peace to you, right? It, all, the, all the fears just vanish. Or another one, I had to use Hobbit and Narnia in these. So in The Hobbit, in The Hobbit, man, this one's for Duncan. When Gandalf, whenever he's with the company of dwarves, they're twice the dwarves they are when they're without him, Right? They're like terrified, well, they're as tall as children, but they're like terrified little children without Gandalf. But when Gandalf's with them, they're these monstrous bearded wonders, right? And so that wasn't, I mean, there's kind of special things about Gandalf, but it was his presence with them that it strengthened them, right? And so we have security and we have strength in these, in these presents, in the presence of people. And these aren't Christmas presents or birthday presents. It's P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. You like that? So another one, some of us can't stand to be alone. And we're like, well, I'm just an extrovert. It's a fear of being alone. It's a fear of being lonely. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. God's given us friends and family for good reasons. But think about it. You hate being alone, but the moment your friends and family are with you, there's really nothing special about them. But their presence, you're no longer lonely. You have community. And so presence gives us security. It gives us strength and it gives us community. These are just very minor points. These aren't like my main points, just so you know. Another one, so from Narnia, what else about presence? When the final battle's being fought and Peter and the White Witch are going at it and just, Peter's about it, Peter's almost done. Peter's gonna be out for the count in a second. The whole army's failing. And then what happens? Aslan shows up, his presence comes on the scene and the battle's over in minutes. Why? Because when they look at, at Aslan's golden mane or when they hear his roar, it revives their hope, right? And Aslan is a special character in this, but it's his presence primarily that revives their hope. He didn't like cast a magic spell to make them all stronger. They didn't like drink Hulk medicine or something and destroy the army. They were revived by his presence. So all these things about presence, it gives us security. It gives us community. It gives us strength. It gives us hope, right? And so we want presence we need presence. We were made for presence. That's the key. If you look at Adam and Eve, why did God make them? To enjoy his presence. In the Garden of Eden, they perfectly enjoyed his presence. And they had all the benefits of his presence. They were to have fellowship. They were to have communion with God forever. And they were to enjoy him. God didn't need to create us. God wasn't lonely without us. He was perfectly happy within himself. We were created to enjoy his presence. So you're like, all right, if I was created to enjoy God's presence, then why do I feel weak, alone, helpless, and hopeless? Why do I feel the opposite of all those things you just said? If I was made to, create, made to enjoy God's presence, why can't we enjoy the benefits of God's presence? Many of us don't. Well, let me take you to Eden for a moment. We're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. We'll get back to our passage, but we're going to go back to Eden, this lush garden that God's just created and he's just set man in. And if we could be a fly on the wall, there weren't walls in Eden. If we could be a tree, a fly on the tree in Eden, we would see God created Adam and Eve. He made them upright. He made them with the purpose of enjoying his presence. And they did. It was sweet. The Garden of Eden was a sweet place because God's presence was with them. That was, the, that was the crowning joy of Eden, God's presence with them. 
But as we're watching, as this fly on the wall is watching, we would see they're enjoying God's presence, enjoying God's presence until they disobey. And the problem with their disobedience is that sin always, always brings separation. Whenever we sin, it brings separation either with God or with other people or both generally, which is sad. And so that's why you can't enjoy the benefits of God's presence oftentimes is because we've been separated from God. That's why you have conflicts and fights with other people is because we've been separated from other people by our sin. As a picture, some of, some of you come from broken homes. Your mom and dad maybe have separated. Why? It's a result of sin. Maybe, probably not your sin, but it is a result of sin, of selfishness, of disobedience, right? Or you get, you get in a fight with one of your friends. Why? Sin. You feel like, why is this happening? It's because of sin and disobedience. It always, always, always brings separation. I can't, I can't hit that enough. Even our seemingly small sins bring separation. Little white lies, disobedience to parents. It brings separation. And that's Satan's greatest victory in tempting us, is bringing separation between God and man and man and other man or women and other women. That was his victory in the garden. That's his victory every time he tempts us and causes us to sin. Because what happens when we sin and we feel separated from God is that we don't immediately want to run to God. Even you believers in here, our first impulse oftentimes isn't to run to God because there's shame and there's guilt with sin. And that's what Satan wants. He wants us to run from God, but we need to run to God. And we'll see that. We'll see that later. But for now, return to our passage. Look at verse 12. It says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said, that he will dwell in thick darkness. Why does it say thick darkness there? It's a cloud of separation. It's to remind us of our separation. It's to remi- and so to remind us of our sin. If you look in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, this is a picture of this mountain, and Israel's gathered before it, and God said he's going to meet the people there. There's a thick cloud of darkness around it, and flashes of lightning and trumpet blasts. Absolutely, the Israelites are terrified out of their mind. Like, they're like, we were not going anywhere close to the mountain. The cloud reminds us of God's holiness and his presence. But when we're reminded of God's holiness, we have to be reminded of our sin. And so that's why it's a cloud of separation. That's why the people were terrified in Exodus, because they knew of their sin. And they knew of God's holiness and they knew of his power. And if you look here... This is why Solomon says that the Lord said he would dwell in thick darkness because he's holy and because he's righteous and because we aren't. And again, back in Eden, just as Adam and Eve stood naked before God, that's what they felt immediately after they sinned. They felt shame and guilt and they knew that they were naked before God. We all stand spiritually naked before God. Every one of our sins are... are, Actions, our thoughts, our words are exposed before the face of God. Our hearts, minds, and souls are literally laid bare before God. Everything we've ever done and the most shame we've ever felt is known by God and seen by God. Which is absolutely terrifying, but we have to see ourselves, Redeemer students, we have to see ourselves in the depths of hell in order to taste the sweetness of heaven. You want to have the most joy in Christ, then you have to understand where you came from, where he pulled you from. 
what you were bought from, slavery to sin. And there's, there's no joy apart from the presence of God. There isn't. If you read Psalm 1611, it says this. In, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, before the face of the Lord, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If we could unpack that, could you imagine literally the fullest joy you've ever felt? And it exceeds that. It's greater than that. Just being in the presence of the Lord, we just talked about how we can't be in the presence of the Lord because of his holiness and righteousness. But if you could be in the presence of the Lord, that would, be, that would exceed the greatest joy you've ever felt. It would satisfy your greatest satisfaction. It literally says there are eternal pleasures just to be in his presence. Just the sweetness of it. And that is the person of Christ. And so why do we, why do we keep on going back to these empty watering holes that the, the world offers us when there are literally eternal pleasures and fullness of joy in Christ Jesus and in God in heaven? And I'm posing a bunch of questions here. We'll figure them out. But if we ask another question, if there's separation between God and man that we just talked about, if God says he's going to dwell in thick darkness in this dark cloud, then why does Solomon build the house of the Lord? Why would the Lord come to dwell with people? Why would he command Solomon to build this house? And why does he promise to live with his people? The presence of God, as I said in the beginning in the tag, the presence of God comes by the fulfillment of his promise. It's by the fulfillment of his promise. It's not anything Solomon did. God wasn't like, oh, this is a sweet house. I'm moving in here. That wasn't the, that wasn't the draw for God. God doesn't look at you and go, man, this, is a, this dude's very moral. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept him. No, but God does this because he's promised to. So if we read verses 13 through 21, I'm going to read 13 again because it's important. Listen to the promises of God. Listen to the promises that he makes to his people in here. Verse 13, I have indeed, Solomon says this, I have indeed built you an exalted house, Lord, a place for you to dwell in forever. And then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel. So he would have been facing this way toward the altar. And then he turns around and faces the people. While all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled... There's an important word. What he promised, another important word, with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. But nevertheless... You will not build the house, but your son who will be born to you will build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers, when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So why does God come to dwell with Israel? His promise, quite simply because he said he would. We'll see why he said he would. 
But it's like when you're talking to your parents, it's like the final word. When you're talking to your parents, you're like, I don't want to do this. Why do I have to do this? And like, because I said so. Why does God come to dwell with his people? Because he said so. It's his promise. It's his word. And God always is true to his word. And if you see in the last verse, Solomon emphasizes the Ark of the Covenant. Look in verse 21. It says, and there in the, in the most holy place, I have provided a place for the Ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is a lot of bringing up the Ark that Solomon's doing. Why? Well, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And this literally just like flew out of nowhere and hit me in the head. I didn't realize this before for a long time. It's called the Ark of the Covenant, but covenant means promise. And so the Ark of the Covenant is a physical sign of God's spiritual promise to Israel. It's so they remember. A believer, this is like for us on a Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper. It's a physical sign of a spiritual promise that God has made us. We remember Christ's death and that it applies to us when we take that bread. It's the same thing for the Israelites here. They're similar. That is, it's a, it's a physical thing. that they could, It's a tangible, physical, they weren't supposed to touch it. But it was a fan, physical, tangible thing that they could see and they would know, yeah, the Lord made a covenant with us and God's gonna be faithful to his word that he will dwell with his people. He most certainly will. And this is why Solomon mentions it so many times in this text, because he's saying, remember your faithfulness, Lord. And to the people, he's saying, remember the faithfulness of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant had two super important components, and they both have to do with the character of God. So if you were to look on the inside, as we already read, the only things on the inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the two tablets of the law that God gave to Moses. And it's, it's the law of God. It's his righteousness and it's his justice. And that is an integral part of God. But then we also see the mercy seat. That's the platform that was on top of it. And this is what the priests would take the blood and they would come in and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And they would apply to the mercy of God according to his promises in order for Israel to be forgiven of their sins. And in order for the individual people to be forgiven of their sins, what do they apply to? The mercy seat. Every single time. They don't apply to the law of God. They apply to the mercy seat. They don't go back in there and open up the lid and look in and be like, well, what did God say to do? We better try to do that next time. No, but they came in with the blood of the lamb and the goat and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and they would apply themselves to the mercy seat according to the promises of God in order to be forgiven of their sins and to be washed and cleansed. And so it's the same with us. We, so, so many of us, have got to stop applying ourselves to the law for our salvation. It's true. It just sounds silly. Like I said, they, don't, they didn't go in there and look back at what God had to do or had them doing and try to do better next time. That won't get you anywhere. But if you apply to the mercy seat of God by faith in Jesus Christ, that will forgive you and cleanse you of all sins and all unrighteousness. That turns that dark cloud of God's presence, that turns that dark cloud into the fullness of joy which you will inherit in heaven if you're in Christ. That's what it is. Seeing the mercy seat of God according to his promise and the forgiveness you have in Christ. So God dwells with man as a result of his merciful covenant, his merciful promise. Why does God dwell with man? He promised. He said so according to his own covenant based on his mercy. So we move to the third section. The presence of God comes by the fulfillment of a promise. What's that last section? It's through David's son. 
It's through David's son. I'm not going to read the section again because we just read it. But if you remember, David says, or sorry, Solomon says, God made a promise to David, my father, that, that his son would sit on the throne of Israel forever and that he would build a, na- a house for the Lord to dwell in forever. So Solomon says, as David's son, I fulfilled those promises. I did those things. I'm sitting on the throne of Israel. I built the temple, the house of the Lord. I fulfilled the Lord's promises. Why do you think there's a party going on? Because God's promises have been fulfilled. And so did Solomon really fulfill the promise? Yes and no. Historically, yes. Solomon sat on the Israelite throne. And Solomon built the temple to the name of the Lord and made it the house of the Lord. But the temple was sacked and pillaged and destroyed by pagans. And Solomon dies a pitiful death. Spoiler alert. Solomon dies a pitiful death. Like every man, I didn't blow anything there. Solomon dies a pitiful death. So if that was the end of God's plan and story right there, build a temple, have a king, king dies, temple gets destroyed, that would be an anticlimactic and sad plan. And God's plan would have been thwarted by the works of men. But it doesn't happen. That wasn't the fulfillment of the promise. Even though Solomon thought it was, that was only just a little bit of it. There's so much more. So, in Matthew 21, 15, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This is what we just celebrated last week. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And the people are lining the way. Palm Sunday, they're lining the way. And they're looking at him and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. What do you think that's hearkening back to? The promise that David's son would sit on the throne of Israel and would build the temple to the Lord. They knew it was Jesus. Solomon died. But the people recognized Jesus as the son of David. Dang, I totally forgot to mention the title of this message, which is God with us. God with us. So you would have gotten it if I would have said it, but you can get it now. God with us, it translates to Emmanuel, which is the name given to Jesus. And so in Jesus's incarnation or in his coming from heaven to earth, it is God literally literally and physically dwelling with man. God's, God is answering his promises. He's fulfilling his promises through, the, through David's son, the son of David, what the people called him. He came to live among us, and so God dwells among us in the person of Christ. Well, what are the implications of this? You're like, all right, this is a lot of abstract stuff. What are the implications of this? I have three of them for you, actually. The first one is this, 1 Corinthians 6.15. Paul says, to the believers. He says this, you are the living temple of the living God. He says your body is a temple. That temple that God's presence was going to dwell in, that's your body if you're a believer. And it means the Holy Spirit is living in you. And Paul says it in this way, how can you continue in sexual immorality if you literally have the Holy Spirit in you? But I would extend that. I would extend that to any category of sin. How can we commit sin literally before the face of God? You're literally in the presence of God every, every moment because the Holy Spirit indwells believers. He is with us at all times. And so we're sinning right before God. That's not, that's not bashing, that's encouragement. That's saying God is with you. Do not, don't continue in sin. 
out of gratitude. Another one, this is why we gather together as a church and why Zoom call church isn't sufficient. This is why the saints physically gather together on Sundays or the Sabbath, whatever. Because Jesus is building a temple with living stones. Jesus is building a new temple with living stones. It says that in 1 Peter 2, 5 and Ephesians 2, 21. So you know where I got that from. If you're a believer, you're a living stone in Jesus's temple. Is that not sweet? That's awesome. And so that's why we meet together and why we have fellowship with the saints and why we can be encouraged by one another. And then finally, there's this one. And it is absolutely splendid. My own words cannot explain this last one. And so I'm gonna read the word. But there, this last one is this. There's a day coming when God's presence, when we will be in God's presence for all of eternity. If you're in Christ Jesus, there's a day coming when you will literally live in the presence of God and experience fullness of joy for all of eternity, an unexplainable amount of time. And it's said in the Psalms that one day with him is better than an entire lifetime. You think your life is dark and sad right now, and perhaps it is. Remember that a day in Jesus's courts is better than an entire lifetime on this sad, puny, passing away earth. I'm gonna read Revelation 21, one through four and 22 and listen to how it talks about the presence of God with his people or God dwelling with his people and there's no more need for a temple, by the way. So here we go, 21, one through four in Revelation. It says, then I saw, John, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away gone, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. How sweet is that? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, that means look at this. Like, I look. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every single tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and also because we'll literally be experiencing the fullest measure of joy forever. That's why you're not going to be crying in heaven. Verse 22, and I saw, John says this, I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. That's the sweetest thing. It says there won't even be need for light because God himself will be the light for us. There's no need for a sun because God himself will act as the sun and give us light. So, Jesus is the realization of this promise that David's son would sit on the throne of Israel, would establish a temple, and more than that, that he would dwell with God's people. That's it. I want to I say one more thing, but close your Bibles and close your eyes. And I want to I just paint a picture on your eyelids. That sound all right? Bibles closed, phones off, close your eyes. We're going to try this, okay? We're coming up on Resurrection, uh, Resurrection Sunday and we're coming up on Good Friday. Good Friday is the day that Jesus was crucified. That's the day we celebrate it. And Easter 
or Resurrection Sunday is the day we celebrate his resurrection. Now, as your eyes are closed, remember that sin is what separates us from God. But remember that God has promised to dwell with his people. So how does he realize the promise? How does holy God come to dwell with sinful people? It's Good Friday. On a hill, a cross. And there's this man. He's not really anything great to look at. But he's been kicked, punched, mocked, beaten, scorned, unclothed, whipped. There's blood running down his face and nails piercing through his skin. And his raw back is nestled into the splintered wood. Excruciating pain, unbearable. But you know what? All of that, everything that we think of Jesus in the crucifixion, that was literally nothing compared to the separation that he felt from God's presence. So keep your eyes closed. There's, there's this man and dark clouds cover everything as he's crucified. And then the most agonizing, pain-filled just excruciating cry ever heard in human history. And it is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the depth of his pain that God had forsaken him. But the joy is this, it says in Mark, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so God comes to dwell with man. And that cry was ours for all of eternity. You and I should have been screaming that out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there would have been a just and a righteous answer. But in a moment in history, he took that cry from us. so that we might be in God's presence. By faith, he is yours and you are his for all of eternity. And there is fullness of joy in him. Father in heaven, thank you that we don't, there's not a necessity that we should utter that awful cry. God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me? But rather we can say the blessing, may the Lord's face shine on you. Why? Because of Jesus' death and because you forsook him instead of us. And it was literally for the joy that was set before him. He wants us so badly to return to him that he would die for those whom the Father had chosen. That is how deep his love is. And so would you just realize that in our hearts, Lord? Please show us the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of Christ which we have, which we have been shown, which we have been given. There is no greater love than that. And now you dwell with us in your Holy Spirit and we will certainly, as certain as the blood of Jesus was spilled for us, we will dwell with you for all of eternity. Praise God. Praise your 
name, Lord. Amen. Well, you are all dismissed.